welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Ruby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast episode. Thanks for joining us. I'm so pleased to welcome my friend and nutrition colleague, Wendy Bussey. She's a registered dietitian. She's been working in this field for over 25 years and really focused on patients with GI disorders, but also patients who have um, what she calls a food avoidance sensitivity Um, So food sensitive clients, and she works with them to help them rediscover the joy of eating and expand their diets and their nutrition. We know that so many patients with IBS and other um, GI conditions tend to over restrict their diets. And so this is a really important topic that I'm excited to talk about today with Wendy. So hi, Wendy, thanks for joining me. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Great. Um, So we did a Twitter chat last week um, where we talked a lot about just the basics of what it is that you do, why patients tend to over-restrict, and how working with a GI dietitian is really, really important um, for patients to learn how to manage their diet when dealing with these symptoms. But for those that did not... um, see our Twitter chat, I think we should probably start uh, a little bit with some some introduction to conditioned food sensitivity. Um, So let's just start there. What is it and how does it develop? So I define a conditioned food sensitivity as a it, as a um, an overreaction, a nervous system overreaction to food. So it's a unconsciously learned physical reaction to food. And really, when we think about food sensitivity, it's often a combination of these conditioned reactions and physically driven reactions. And it's conditioning is a part of all of our, our physiological response. It sounds like an odd thing, but the way our the way we learn and the way that our body works, conditioning is a really important part of that. So it's I would say that condition conditioning is a part of all food sensitivities. In some cases, it's a major part, and in other cases, it's a minor part, but it is really a part of all food sensitivities. So for patients that have IBS or other um, GI conditions where they're really starting to look at the role of diet in managing their uh, their symptoms, how and why does this develop specifically in patients who have GI disorders? 
Well, if we talk more generally, and then I can get more back into GI, but whenever someone is suffering with challenging symptoms that they don't have a a satisfactory explanation for, typically that leads to research on the internet Mm -hmm. or with different healthcare professionals. And the research often uncovers misleading and sensationalized theories about health, about digestive disorders, about food. And really that creates a lot of fear, really mistrust. Like people get into, um, you know, being very suspicious about food, being suspicious about their bodies. And, and that just pulls them into the trap where food becomes a danger cue. And once that becomes, once that happens, then there's, um, it's, a person becomes hypervigilant, very suspicious and, and watching out for different foods. And then just automatically when something is a danger cue, we react to it. So say, for example, one of my danger cues is pit bulls. And I was bit by a pit bull at one point. And so when I'm out walking my little doggy, I'm often scanning for pit bulls. Now I don't, I don't go out. I don't start my walk thinking, oh, I, I'm, I'm going to watch out for those pit bulls. <laughs> But I know that unconsciously, especially if a dog of a certain body type passes, I'm looking at the face to see if it's a pit bull, right? And then trying to pull my dog back, right? So that's, now if a pit bull was to come towards me, I will have a physical reaction to that experience. And so the same thing can happen with food where food becomes a danger cue. Now, the problem is I can pretty well avoid pit bulls. You can't (laughs) avoid food. So when food is a danger cue you're exposed to it, you know, several times a day, everywhere you turn is, is food. And so it, it, for um, anybody that suffers mysterious symptoms, it can, it's very easy to get caught into this trap. Now, specifically for digestive clients that suffer with digestive disorders, food often eating can be, can cause pain and other debilitating symptoms and, and just that's often the process of digestion. So then you're just naturally more suspicious about food. So it's then easy to get trapped into a cycle of looking, you know, researching about food and, and, and thinking about food all the time and wondering, well, what did I eat that might have caused this symptoms? It just becomes a very, a very, um, it's a very slippery slope. And you're at very high risk when, when you have digestive disorders. I think you're right. I think one of the dangers that a lot of patients fall into is looking online when they first become symptomatic and they're trying to understand what's going on with their bodies. You do that initial Google search and oh my goodness, there's so much information that comes at you. And a lot of it is diet related and don't eat this, eat that, but don't, but only this amount and only this brand and only, and there's so much that isn't just, you know, nonsense, um, or, or pseudoscience and not grounded in any sort of evidence. Um, but also a lot of misunderstanding about some of the validated dietary therapies as well. Um, such as the low FODMAP diet, which is frequently not um, used properly and not used under the guidance of, of a dietitian or, uh, or a professional. Um, and so patients end up, you know, on that elimination phase long-term indefinitely um, and really still not many times finding benefit, but becoming nutritionally deficient. Um, so 
You're right. I think that that internet piece is really tricky. So I really encourage patients don't do it. Avoid it. Don't go there. Um, but I also, you know, personally reflecting on what you said, um, with patient, with food becoming this danger cue, you know, my, my symptoms all begin with a, a food poisoning. Um, and I can very clearly see in my mind that chicken salad sandwich that I ate that triggered that E. coli infection and sent me to the hospital and gave me post-infection IBS. And it's just, I, even though logically I know that chicken salad is a safe food and it's not going to make me ill, I still don't eat it. Like to this day, 15 years later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting how we are, we are conditioned in that way. You know, you have a negative effect and you're like, I'm done. I'm not yeah. going to do that again. For sure. But conditioning yeah. can be described too, as a an unpleasant or a traumatic experience with food that creates a symptom food association. Oh. So that's exactly what you described. You had a, you had a traumatic incident with that chicken salad sandwich. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's interesting when patients start associating food with their symptoms, particularly now, just to be clear for our listeners, we're not talking about patients who have a diagnosis of celiac disease, where they must adhere to a gluten-free diet and their symptoms are directly correlated Mm -hmm. to their diet. Um, But more specifically, we're talking about patients with hypersensitivity in the bowel, IBS, Um, you know, so any sort of food that they ingest, that stimulation of the digestive process is an an oversensitivity, a hypersensitivity. And so they're, they're interpreting that as pain, whereas someone else would not interpret that as painful. Um, But when we're talking about those sorts of patients, I think a lot of them feel a, a sense of a lack of control. Um, do you ever see patients who are really using diet to try and gain control over their life again? For sure. I I agree with you very much. And I think that came out so well in your book with your, that your second book with the patient stories is, is that's the thing that jumped out at me and many things jumped out, but the thing that so clearly jumped out for me was that, that sense of lack of control, that helplessness that comes with mysterious symptoms. So for sure, you know, you think of all of the things that we could potentially control in our lives, food is the one we have the most control over. We know exactly what we we eat. We can, we can, we have complete control over, it. although, I mean, we could get into the often restriction. Um, impulsive eating is, is a flip side of restriction. So it's, um, you know, often <laughs> it's that control that leads to, to, to lack of control. Right. So I, I think a lot of times, clients want their symptoms to be food related because if it is food related then they can have some control whereas if it's hormone related well Mm. that's 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 pretty challenging yes yes definitely now um you and I have talked in the past about ARFID and there's been a lot of recent work uh around ARFID is becoming really uh, commonly diagnosed um, amongst patients with GI conditions, um, mostly in the younger population. Um, But can you explain to our audience uh, 
they are familiar with ARFID, the difference between conditioned food sensitivity and ARFID, because there, there are some distinct differences. Yeah. So ARFID, so avoid restrictive food intake disorder. And there's there's different types of ARFID. And, and more, as you said, more recently, there's been talk about um, a, a subtype that would be related to fear of consequences. And sometimes that can be um, fear of, of if somebody, like you had said exactly as you described, you could essentially have ARFID related specifically to chicken sandwiches, right. which doesn't affect your quality of life at all, right? But in it's other true. cases, for some people, it can be more extensive to a number of foods. And so we're starting to, to really talk more about for people that it's fear of food sensitivity of of exacerbate making their symptoms worse. Yeah. And so that I would say that conditioned food sensitivity would be the would be the consequence of ARFID. So ARFID is you're avoiding the food, mm-hmm. you're thinking a lot about the consequences of those food. And over time, then that creates this that that food becoming a very strong danger cue, which would mean then if you were to eat and sometimes even think about that food, people would then experience symptoms with it. And I have a a, a flow chart that I've developed. It's the food avoidance and sensitivity trap, but really it could be, it does describe ARFID, this particular yeah. subtype of ARFID as well. Yeah, it really does. I love your flow chart too. Well, um, We'll include that in the show notes too. And it's going to be on the website underneath this video as well. So you can click on that and learn more about um, Wendy's work and, and her program working with patients with um, with this condition. Uh, Wendy, we've talked um, in the past about, well, not just the biopsychosocial approach to working with patients with these conditions, which we know is really important, but the the impact of shame and guilt that goes into diet over i guess diet control issues (laughs) and over restriction issues especially when you've tried to restrict the foods that you think are causing your symptoms and yet you're still symptomatic and you begin to have the self-blame and you're just like what is wrong with me why is my body failing me why am i such a mess um, and, and you, you fall into this really depressive cycle and, and it, it just, it causes so much more symptoms then, cause we know the brain and the gut are connected. Mm-hmm. So it's so, um, you know, it's not a helpful place to be in. Um, but how do you work with patients in that regard? Cause it seems like, you know, I'd like to say I've told someone recently, and I think in the, in the Twitter chat, I said, Wendy works at the intersection of GI psychology and GI nutrition, like so much of what you do with your patients is is a psychology kind of base program too. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, and in, in my, I was um when I was probably teenage teenage years, I wanted to be a psychologist, and I think on on another podcast we did. I also then wanted to. I was going to go into commerce and that whole story, but anyways, yeah, for yeah. years I wanted to be a psychologist, but I ended up going into dietetics. 
but then I ended up, I, and very much I saw I was drawn when I worked for the health region, I was drawn to uh, helping people with binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And, and here I am in food sensitivities drawn to the mind body connection. So yeah. you, you get back to, yeah, you get back to your, your roots and what you love eventually. Hey, so yeah, exactly. So how just, and if I can take a step back and talk sure. a bit more about, you know, where guilt and shame can come from and many different areas but what I see is exactly what you talked about is if you have a belief that your 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 symptoms are diet related so therefore you should have control over it and now you have a symptom flare exactly as you said it it can lead to this self-blaming and and just a feeling somehow I I failed because I I have symptoms which is really unfortunate because chances are very good that it wasn't it it wasn't food related it wasn't anything that you could have controlled also when impulsive eating is a very common flip side of restriction so whether that restriction is somebody's trying to lose weight or whether they're trying to control their symptoms restriction is restriction so so impulsive eating is really common. And that brings a great deal of shame because people think, well, I'm a weak person. Why did I just eat that? You know, may, often that that impulsive eating can come in the form of um, overeating safe foods or eating foods that are believed to be triggers. But, you know, a person can start to feel, well, why am I so weak that I that I allowed myself to do that? But really, it is it is a natural flip side of restriction and and studies yeah. I don't have these studies that I can just pull out but I, I remember when working with binge eating uh uh, uh reading a a well-written an evidence-based article that talked about if let's say you just you have rats in a cage you don't do anything to the rats but you give them add they can eat as much of their rat chow as they want they will eat and just exactly what they need but if you restrict their rat chow and mm-hmm. then give them free free access they will eat themselves yeah. they will eat way too much right so that really shows us that this isn't a a willpower issue really it is something in that that reptilian brain that says i need to i need to start eating right so i think mm-hmm. you know really and it comes down to like every other area of our self self development is really being aware of those messages and 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 offering self-compassion and often yeah. you know when I often say to clients not to not to over not to worry too much about especially if they have been impulsive eating not to worry too much about it because it will naturally correct correct itself as as you as your restrictions and your focus on food soften and lessen so will the impulsive eating so yeah, just taking that focus off it and offering self-compassion to know that, yeah, like in this circumstance, almost everybody is going to have episodes of impulsive eating. Right. I think, you know, one thing that, um, that I think you probably do that is in my opinion, really important is that patient education piece, because for a lot of patients without the knowledge of what's really going on in the physiology of these conditions, they, you know, in, incorrectly assume that diet is the driver of all of their symptoms. Um, and once some education happens, then that self, um, 
empathy and that self-love can kind of come in knowing, okay, yeah, I'm not to blame. This is what's going on in my body. And it's not what I ate necessarily or what I didn't eat necessarily. It's a combination of a lot of different things. Um, And I think that education piece is so important. And many times patients don't get that. Um, You know, they go to the doctor and they, they leave more confused than they were when they came in. So you know, how do you address patient education for someone that's coming in and really like no knowledge and frustrated and grasping everywhere, which is where the Dr. Google comes in, unfortunately, too. Yeah. Uh, how do you handle that? Well, and then the the great thing is having a, a program. And if there's any healthcare professionals mm-hmm. listening, I would say that if if you do specialize in a very specific area, I found my ability to help people significantly improved when I was able to take all everything I was saying and put it into videos and graphics and, you know, education pieces. So in, in the program that we have is it's, it's self-study, but then led it's um, not led it's client led, but supported by a dietitian. So that allows people to go through and pick and like to to filter out and say okay this is this is the nugget for me this is and right. and often what i found is when i before i had developed the resources and i was just talking with clients is is it would take a lot of talking <laughs> right yeah. because if there's say 20 20 nuggets we'll say like like little little tips like not i won't say tips but sort of a bit of information that changes the perspective on how you look at something. If, if there's, there's a word for that. I can't just quite think of it right now, but that, and we'll call that a nugget. Um, If there's 20 nuggets, everybody has their own little nuggets, right? Right. So um, I find that, that having the resources there is great because people can go through and find their own nuggets and then talk with that, with their, their dietitian, which is really helpful. Yeah. No, I like that, that module based learning where they can kind of go through and find the ones that are important to them and applicable to them. I think that's a great approach. Now, um, when you're working with patients or or I guess maybe providers really, um, primary care or, or gastroenterologists, um, who might be sending patients to you, um, is there, are there anything, any tips or any questions that you wish they had um, communicated with their patients before sending them to you. Um, I think sometimes there's a tendency to just, you know, refer, 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 and not, not really want to deal with, um, any sort of screening for food anxiety or, uh, any potential red flags that might be present. Um, anything that you kind of communicate to with your referring providers, I, I would say that, well, we have a self-assessment and that's the problem too, with just talking is I can't always, webinars are nice, right? Because you can, you can pull it up, but yeah. we do on our website have a self-assessment tool. And, and really, I believe conditioned food sensitivity and whether somebody is stuck in the food avoidance and sensitivity trap is very much a self-assessment versus, okay. versus someone making a diagnosis and saying you mm-hmm. are suffering with this because right, there are right. no black and white there's no obviously like a um, a biological indicator or anything that can be absolutely tested and 
And even if a person is coming in and saying, you know, all foods bother me, typically then we think, well, that must be, you know, a conditioned response. But certainly, as we talked about, when your digestive system is is twitchy and hyperreactive, all foods will bother you, right? So there is no absolute to say a person, this is what is causing. I find it's best to say to someone, it might be a potential explanation for some of what you're what you're suffering with. And also to really let people know, as you guys have done so well in your books, is this is a physical reaction. So this isn't, you you know, a conditioned food sensitivity isn't an imagined reaction to a food. It is a physical reaction that can be as severe Mm. as, as a physically driven reaction. Even, I mean, there are many cases of people with food anaphylaxis Hmm. that think they ate their allergen and suffer very similar symptoms. There's some differences um, and an allergist certainly could weigh into this, but can suffer many of the the hives, the the physical symptoms that they would if they'd actually eaten their allergen. So, um, you know, again, as you guys have so um, done so eloquently in your books is just the power of that that connection and 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 you know we talk about the the brain gut communication but really the brain body like the whole yeah beyond the gut the whole body communication so yeah letting people know and letting people know that it isn't you know it's this whole idea of psychosomatic as being a bad thing but the matter is the fact of the matter is our brain controls so much like like most of we are so much of our health is psychosomatic and that's normal that's not a that's not a a bad it's not a and and so being able to communicate that as you know in in a very sensitive validate it too you know validation is a big thing because you're right there has been a lot of stigma attached to the psychosomatic or somatic pain syndromes in general and I think you know the the takeaway for many people is that it's not real. It's imagined. It's all in your mind. And it's something that you're making up um, and that your body is responding to or not, or you're even, you know, feigning your symptoms as well. Um, And I think that validation piece is really important. And coming from a medical professional, a healthcare provider, it's has to come from there. (laughs) Right. That's what the patient's looking for um, to, to get that that adherence to then the treatment plan or whatever the case may be. So you're right. And I think along those same lines is that then there's a quick fix. If it's psychosomatic, well, you should just be able to do a yoga class and it goes away. Snap your finger. Yeah. Yeah. That that's like once the nervous system has made those changes, it's not a quick fix anymore. Right. It can be as difficult as trying to change the structure of the body. It's possible yeah. for sure, but it's not a quick fix. It's it's a a, a, a process. You know, yesterday, uh, Dr. Drossman and I were on a call um, discussing yes. our book with a group of of retired and semi-retired um, psychologists and psychiatrists. And one thing that I had said that one of them corrected me on, and rightly so, and was so impactful to me, is that I had said that the patient provider relationship had been for me and for many other patients, just as therapeutic as 
the pharmacological and the dietary therapies. And this one psychologist interrupted me and he said, I disagree. The patient provider relationship was a part of the therapy. It wasn't just as therapeutic. It was therapeutic, yeah. it was a part of the full yeah. process of therapy. So to separate out is doing a disservice to the work that you have done and Dr. Grossman have done. It needs to be all encompassed. So I think even the education piece that you're referencing is so important. That is the therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, just as important as the food that we're eating is the validation, the empathy, the education, the support. Um, and all of that is a part of what's getting patients better and back on track. And so I think if we can all start thinking in that way, you know, it's not our, our relationship with our patients is not a part of, it is the therapy and, and the medication, so to speak. Um, and, and I think that's so critical it was for, really cool. yeah, for, and I apologize if I'm cutting you off, we have a little bit of a delay, so I apologize okay. for that. But I think it's so important for professionals to, to remember that because a lot of times when we're faced with a client, which we don't know what to say, and we think, I don't know what to do here, we get defensive Mm. and tend to brush a person off. But if we know that just simply validating, and I'd like to, I'll make a note about accountability as well, if simply just, you know, validating the suffering that that client is going through and helping them make choices with where they want to go, what what treatments they want to try, is huge. And if we know that 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 in itself is probably more valuable than having the answer for them, we don't have to get defensive. We don't have to know the answers. Gosh, I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And accountability is so important. And just a, a cute little story from my life is you know, like, like all of us, I'm, I'm constantly on a, um, a a journey to live more mindfully. Mm. I tend to get caught in my, my stories. And, and, you know, I, I, um, you know, I, you know, and and I'll, I'll do well for a couple days, and then I get off track. But my sister and I are, um, my phone rings at 6 p.m. And then we have to, I, so I text her with how I've, I've done with being more mindful and then, and then have to congratulate, you know, like a, give myself a thumbs up or something. <laughs> and then she, she texts back with her goals and we don't get into a long conversation because that's another story. Right. But that right. it's really been helpful actually. And it's just simply that, that accountability mm. to, to stay on our goals, which is really challenging. Like even for someone like me who is a coach, sure. <laughs> I need I need someone to help me be accountable to my goals. So yeah, I I think that that relationship and, and I wish our medical system would go go towards that where our first person that we encounter is not necessarily a physician, but say a nurse practitioner or someone who is trained to be a coach. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I think we would have a much different medical system. Yeah, no, I agree. I've actually, uh, Dr. Drossman and I have talked about that. I think it's a pretty easy, but it's much easier to do in say a private practice um, than an academic medical center, obviously. But yeah, I agree. I think there's tremendous value in nurse educators and patient navigators and social workers and all of those answers. 
ancillary but super important providers um, for our patients. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting model. Let's discuss that next time. Now, you have a great website for patients with a lot of really good information. Can you kind of give us a little bit of preview in terms of the resources there? Um, You you talked a little bit about the self-assessment, but you also have a handbook that patients can download and, and reference as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's just an ebook, and um, I do. I you um, put in your e- I put in your email, and I <laughs> I like I send all I send people. It's not spam. It's <laughs> once a month. It's the summary of my podcast. So I do. You were a wonderful guest on my podcast a couple of times, and so I just summarize the wisdom of the of the the, the guest has given us, and then put that into a podcast. And that so that's the only email. Um, that that you're you're getting and yeah so it's an ebook that talks about the flow chart and then there's a a video you can click on it and then there's a video to uh i have a a basically a case study with somebody's experience and how how they how they experience the chart and then some other examples of how people might experience it differently and sorry i said experience the chart i meant flow chart like yeah the um the flow chart is a is a, uh, you know, your typical diagram with, you know, this happens and this happens and this happens right. and this happens. So uh, yeah. So how one person experienced it and how people might experience it differently. And then our tips, because I, I see when I first started working in helping people expand their diet, I would go bam right into a diet expansion plan. And unfortunately it wasn't often successful. And I do apologize and feel very badly for some of those earlier clients. But what I realized is, is that that dietary and symptom hypervigilance needs to be softened before mm-hmm. expe- before diet expansion. So I kind of, my, in uh, my um, resources, I, I break into primarily two, like softening, the fast softening that hypervigilance and then diet expansion. And then we have our top tips for, to get people started um, on for both that, that softening the hypervigilance and then for expanding their diet. Yeah, that's great. Um, You know, on the, on the Twitter chat, we had some of our GI psychology colleagues um, weighing in about working with patients in this realm as well. And I, I do, I mean, we've said already psychology is a major part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, do you work with a psychologist for your for patients who really need that extra support and that higher level of care? Yes, and I don't have a specific psychologist. I and I should also say as well, I don't um, work specifically with clients anymore because of our our overregulation. <laughs> as a dietitian, um, I have a very small geographic area that I can actually see clients, right. so it's just I'm not seeing enough to keep up my therapeutic skills. So, so I work with other dietitians who then provide the service, and honestly. A, those dietitians are better counselors um, than I am. I, I, um, I tend to get too excited and go off on tangents. So with <laughs> clients, but they're very good about, and, and I'm doing all the talking, which, you know, client counseling, it should be the other way around. So, so my partners are, are I think, better counselors than I am. But anyways, is um, with psychology, yes, very important. So as dietitians, we can help people with the basics but we can't go beyond that. So um, one example would be is we sometimes have clients that then realize 
through this that they have a high level of health anxiety. And maybe it's related to, for example, um, a typical thing would be if someone, say, had uh, a relative diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer and passed really quickly, right? That obviously is going to lead to a lot of hypervigilance around around Mm -hmm. digestive symptoms. But as dietitians, that's not our place to Uh, we don't have the knowledge or the skills to help somebody with that. So typically what happens is if someone identifies a need for further, further um, psychological therapy, then our, our, our uh, simple really um, work that we do with them, then they'll often go off and work with a a psychologist and the the dietitian helps them find someone. And then they come, come back to us (laughs) to, to finish and then to go into diet expansion. So yeah, it's, I think we all, it's almost, you know, years ago, it was like, we were very distinct, all of us different professions, we were distinct, and now we're having overlap. But yet at the same time, we do need to realize where our our skills and our knowledge end and where, where the other professions pick up. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, I, I mean, the idea of, of inter or multidisciplinary care, all working together, um, with patients is really important. And, you know, new data, as you know, has shown the benefit for the patient in better clinical outcomes and lower overall healthcare costs, um, with reduced testing and reduced visits and just, just really good, um, for everybody involved. So I love that you're doing that too. Yeah. And I think it's, it's great when, a team of professionals can have an overall plan because one thing I did when I worked in primary care is say there would be myself as a dietitian and then we'd have our, our exercise wellness people and then nurses and then the doctor and the, the, the clients were developing a action plan with each person. And that was a lot of action plans, right? Yeah. And it's really hard. <laughs> Often they were exhausted and, sure. and and quit because it was just overwhelming for them. So I now actually do work with a, a pain clinic. And rather than me developing an action plan separate is I actually, when I talk with clients, I actually talk with the nurse, the nurse, the three of us talk. Yeah. And then we work whatever we, we decide whatever that client decides dietary, that works into their overall plan. And that's just working a hundred percent better. Yeah. That's a beautiful model. And then the physician is aware of the overall work that's being done and there's no separation and and fragmentation of care. So that's really great. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, my son had a, had a, uh, sensitivity to food, um, condition when he was quite young. And we ended up having to take him to a pediatric feeding clinic um, where they had a a multidisciplinary team that worked with him. So we had the dietitian, we had the occupational therapist, the gastroenterologist, um, and, and the behavioral psychologist all meeting with us at the same time. So our appointments had, you know, like six members in the room together yeah. and we'd all be talking together so that everyone was on the same page with the next steps. And it was so nice. It was so nice for me as the mother of the patient to not have all of these individual um, clinic visits and trying to remember what, who said what and when and how, and, you know, all of that falling upon me, it was a team-based approach and it was beautiful and it mm-hmm. ended up with wonderful results um, for my son. So it was nice. Mm-hmm. 
And I would say as a, as a professional, that sounds wonderful. Like I just, I want to join that group. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, So as we wrap up our conversation today, what are your final tips for patients and or other healthcare providers in relation to condition food sensitivity? Just a a last little tip I would like to, to suggest is for professionals to be very aware of the language that they're using. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to create fear Mm -hmm. without knowing it. So even we talked about the low FODMAP diet and just for, for listeners, the low FODMAP diet is an experimentation and and for for professionals as well. It's an experiment, it's an experimental diet to see if it makes a difference. But so often patients come away from the doctor with the idea that high FODMAP foods are bad foods and I shouldn't eat them. And it just even like offhand a comment like, well, maybe you should cut out FODMAPs out of your diet could create a lifelong fear of, you know, onions and garlic and wheat and, you know, really um, to take away from that person's quality of life. So just to be very cognizant of, of the words that you're using and if you are going to talk about diet or, or restriction in any way to make sure you have the time to thoroughly assess that client. So knowing what they're eating, knowing what their relationship with food mm-hmm. currently is and past history, um, you know, if, if they, they've had a history of eating disorders, because as we know is that restriction, uh, getting through, so like say an eating disorder such as anorexia nervosa, is really challenging to overcome and and people work very, very hard at that. And even sometimes uh, an offhanded comment and a bit of restriction can can um uh, re-trigger that disease. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate because it's it's tough. So yeah, it's in summary, just being very careful. And if you're going to talk about restriction, make sure you're assessing and you're following up with that client. Yeah. Good advice. Words matter. Um, particularly in patient care with these conditions. So I appreciate that reminder. Wendy, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you and talk to you about these topics and all the work that you're doing. Um, If you have any questions for Wendy, please let us know and we'll forward them over to her. And of course, your website is? Fast, fast, F-A-S-T, freedomprogram.com. Perfect. And we will put a link to it on our TuesdayNightIBS.com website, as well as in our show notes. Um, So thanks for joining us again for another Tuesday Night IBS podcast episode. We will see you again next month. Take care, everyone. Bye now. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS. And be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.